Hi, I'm Sylvain Bertolo, and you're listening to On One Condition, a podcast to raise awareness about health conditions by listening to people who live them every day. Today, my guest is Don Brockett, and we're going to talk about anorexia. Hi, Don. Nice to receive you on the podcast. How are you? I'm so well, Sylvain, and I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. It's a pleasure. Uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, so before we go into the topic, as you know, I like talking about songs. Uh, and I've asked you to choose a song that means something to you or that just makes you dance. So what song is that? My favorite song of all time is Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. Why is that? Oh, for many reasons. First, the song itself is absolutely beautiful and inspiring in terms of, you know, how to view the world. But I also love the backstory. So Marvin Gaye, of course, was a Motown artist and had become a bit of a sex symbol um, throughout his career. But he had a lot to say um, beyond, mm-hmm. you know, the, the beautiful songs with that gorgeous voice that he was singing. So when he wrote the What's Going On album, um, the Motown record label, Barry Gordy, was not very uh, excited to record it because it was, you know, it was a social justice album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so he had to fight very hard uh, to be able to put that record out. And it is, you know, it is such a solid part of his legacy. It's beautiful. And I just, I love the conviction that he had in, um, in recording that entire record. But the song itself, I can never listen to it without feeling inspired. Yeah, I get that. It's one of my favorite Marvin Gaye songs as well. And it's interesting because it's it's a strong message, very strong song, but at the same time, not aggressive in the way he delivers it. But the message is still on point. Beautifully said. Thank you. Uh, so today we're going to talk about uh, a condition uh, that you uh, suffered from, anorexia. Uh, but before we, we go into that, I understand that you're fully recovered. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, I I haven't been acutely ill for a bit more than 20 years at this point. Um, from a physical perspective, I think the psychological journey is ongoing. Uh, but yes, someone I'm in a very good place. So I'm very comfortable speaking to it at any level. I don't think that that carries any risk. Okay, thank you. Um, so why don't we start where you think anorexia started and, and started affecting you? When was that? Sure. You know, there there have to be multiple factors. There's certainly a genetic one. So I guess that starts us at the very beginning. Um, there are neurobiological factors as well, um, structural um, in terms of the function of neurotransmitters. Things behave a bit differently in the brain of the anorectic, both pre and post clinical, and certainly during the acute stages. Um, but I think the the environmental or kind of social story of anorexia, I, I believe it starts probably for any of us who experienced this very early on. And, and I can get into that where, you know, gender roles and kind of what your, um, how you're supposed to show up in the world, you know, that is, that is set from a, a stereotypical perspective by age five. And there's data showing that that I'm, I'm happy to speak to. 
so I think the template was poured early on. I was I grew up in a very strict religion uh, that had a lot to say about you know what I what I was allowed to wear and do mm-hmm. and say. Um, I had a a um, parental figure that certainly weighed into um, my development of anorexia. Um, so it, it's hard to pinpoint a specific uh, you know moment at which it began, but the yeah. physical decline, the the part of anorexia that is the eating restriction, which is I think you know what people tend to focus on. Yeah. Though I would argue anorexia is you know restriction across the board and has a lot more to do. Uh, with a number of other things, but the the part of the part that we all relate to is you know the moment of anorexia, the starvation phase. Yeah, that started for me when I was fifteen years old. Okay, so you so you're saying that the the eating side of anorexia is just the visible one, uh, but there's much more to it than what we see. Is that right? That is how I see it. Okay. Um, so how do you think that's affected you then? Yeah, I mean, just to be really clear, the eating side is a critical piece. It is the diagnostic mm-hmm. piece. It is the piece that you know runs the risk of ultimately uh, killing you, right? Anorexia has, yeah. of all psychiatric illnesses, it has the highest mortality rate. Uh, so it is a critical part of the journey. The reason I say it's it's a bit more, and speaking to your question of how does that affect me or how has it affected me, which is an ongoing effect, mm-hmm. is that the the starvation of oneself almost to death. It is a it is a complex monster in one's head. It is it is yeah. not simply that act of starvation. It is not some extreme version of willpower. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's it's far more complex than that. So how it's affected me, it, it really has to do with I think the the stories and the beliefs that I integrated very early about myself. And of course, like I said, there must be a genetic and other triggers. But from an environmental or social um, socio environmental perspective, mm-hmm. I I essentially came to believe that my worth, my value. Uh, was calculated only in um, in the perspective of how others benefited from it, right? So, uh, for example, in, in my in my family with my father, I think that my worth and my value uh, was calculated only in as much as I made him look good, right? Or I, I kind of shined okay. shined my accomplishment lights on him. Um, I think society does that to women as well, and and here's where I will stop and say, um, anorexia affects women. To men at a rate of ten to one. Really. Uh, so, so I think it's it's when I start to dive into gender, that is that is part of why I do think that is um, a piece of the story. Yeah, yeah. And does it affect women as they are going through puberty more, or can it affect women at any point in time? So yes to both of those. It it does mm-hmm. affect women. Uh, you know the typical, uh, the more common age of onset is right around the age of puberty. We unfortunately see uh, cases, you know, of um, that are starting much earlier, uh, and certainly um, some will start a bit later. But the vast majority of folks will, um, you know, kind of begin their 
eating restriction journey, whatever was happening psychologically before then, um, mm. at about the onset of puberty. So going back to, um, so you said that you you, it's about the way you value yourself, um, and you mentioned your, your dad, for example. Well, how did you feel, and what led you led those feeling to take over essentially um, your own perception of yourself? And what led you to, to then to, to the extreme of, of anorexia and, and the eating disorder? Yeah, that's a great question, Sylvan. So I say in my book, anorexia is not about control, okay. which flies in the face of probably everything you've ever heard. Mm -hmm. I, and, and I'll speak to that, why I think that it isn't. Um, anorexia really is about shrinking to the space that you feel like you're allowed to take up in your life. And that space as is defined um you know is defined and controlled by yeah. others uh so it is it is a shrinking of oneself physically and otherwise so kind of tying from your current question back to the previous question i, I want to share a little piece of research i had the pleasure of being in conversation with dr amy cuddy who's a social psychologist out of harvard earlier this month and on this topic, and she doesn't study eating disorders directly necessarily, but a lot of the work that she's doing has great overlap um, in this space, and, and we were discussing that. So she and her team at Harvard knew that our stereotypes are set about the age of five. That's about the point that we are you know, determining who one is and what they're capable of and how we should interact with them um, mm -hmm. from a stereotypical fashion. She wanted to understand how that affects um, gender and yeah. literally taking up space in the room. So her research has a lot to do with how you hold yourself. And I realize we're getting a little bit away from anorexia here, but it, it ties in beautifully. So just track with me for, for a minute. How you hold <laughs> yourself in, in space um, has a lot to do with how you feel about yourself and what becomes then possible mm -hmm. for you. So in this research, uh, they worked with four-year-olds and six-year-olds on either side of the age of five, of course, with 32 art-posing dolls. So these wooden, genderless art-posing dolls that you can form into any shape. Okay. Um, you know, they'll hold that shape, obviously. They posed 16 of them in this very open, you know, extended arms and legs, kind of space-taking, these space-taking shapes. And they posed the other 16 in these contracted restricted, kind of controlled, small shapes. Yeah. No other identification of any kind and asked the kids to identify the boys and the girls. So at age four, the majority of these kiddos said, oh, those constricted shapes, those are girls. And the open shapes, those are boys. Okay. By the age of six, it was 100%. And I think this is profound. Found. Uh, what I find interesting about that research is that by the age of five or six, we have integrated this idea that women are to be small and are to shrink um, and to literally take up less space in the world. Mm -hmm. And men are to grow and expand. And that is a that is a dramatic 
belief to integrate so young. And I believe that if you fast forward that belief through all of the ongoing continuing societal pressures, um, add puberty where everything grows and expands, right? Mm-hmm. Socially, psychologically, intellectually, and certainly physically in myriad ways, there is, there is expansion, there's growth. I think that it is no shock that the onset of anorexia tends to be right at that point where a young woman, and of course, sometimes um, a young man or other genders, but generally a young woman is going to be expanding and beginning to individuate uh, herself, you know, away from everyone else in her life. And I think that combination of taking up space and becoming individual is stunted and halted uh, in the anorexia in the, in the anorexic process. And, and I think there are very specific reasons for that. I believe that explains my experience and many others with whom I've had the pleasure to speak far more honestly and with a lot more integrity than does the myth of control. Anorexia is not about controlling, which is the, the party line right now. You know, if you went into therapy today, you'd be very likely to be told that that is the issue. Your life is out of control yeah. and this is yeah. an exercise in um, establishing control. Um, I found that to be false, fairly insulting, and mm-hmm. um, simply not beneficial to the therapeutic process. Okay. So it's it's a lot around the pressure of society then and the pressure of your environment. Is that correct? I think that's a big part of it, Sylvan. And, and the way that that shows up sometimes is in the pursuit of perfection. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there is a pathological process happening within the anorectic brain, and it is not purely social pressures because not all of us are anorexic. Yeah. I want to really clarify that. It's not just fashion and social media and, and these other things because it's about 1% or slightly less of women who become anorexic and fractional percent of men who do. And, um, and you know, most of us are exposed to a lot of the same stuff that runs the risk of making you feel pretty badly about yourself. So obviously yeah. there, there's a lot more going on here pathologically. Um, but yes. Okay. And so when you look back at uh, you personally, how did you feel uh, when you were growing up that you think led you to um, to anorexia or and I, I'm sorry I, I know I'm hesitating but I don't know if it, if I should say that you became anorectic or if it was something that you feel like you already had anyway oh yeah what a beautiful distinction how it felt growing up and did I feel like I, I kind of came that way I think like I said, there, there obviously is, and it's been demonstrated, a, a genetic component. Um, there's a neurostructural component. So I, I think I was I was built with the possibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but how I, how I became that way and how it felt growing up, well, that's such a beautiful question. In, in many ways, I had, a, I had a fabulous childhood. I am, I am among the very fortunate. Um, we had no money growing up it was approaching abject poverty but okay. the i had uh i had a mother who is extraordinary and mm-hmm. you know loves to the deepest level um i had 
uh, two older brothers who are um, kind and caring and and wonderful humans. And my father is a bit problematic. He's diagnosed uh, with narcissistic uh, sociopathy. I okay. think that definitely had a an impact on me as a child. But um, yeah, I, I don't I don't have a tragic childhood story. I'm very fortunate. No. I escaped um, I escaped you know any variant of sexual assault. You know, the CDC just released a report that. High school girls in the U.S. nearly fourteen of fourteen percent of them have been forced to have sex, and twenty four percent have created a suicide plan. Uh, that was just released recently. Data from the fall of twenty twenty one, which is wow. terrifying. Yeah. Um, I was fortunate to really escape a, a lot of what um, a lot of people contend with. So I, I think how I felt growing up was, in many ways, I felt free. Um, and, you know, I had a childhood in Montana primarily where I spent a lot of time outdoors and mm-hmm. in nature and the, the food that we ate was either grown in the garden or hunted. Yeah. Um, I had a childhood that was probably a bit more similar to maybe some of, you know, you know, my age cohorts, grandparents or something like yeah. that, you know, milk from the dairy and, uh, <laughs> very physically active. And, um, my mother was a teacher. My father, uh, professional photographer and did, you know, other kind of odd jobs. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I was very fortunate in my childhood. I, I was able to have some stability at home um, and to escape a lot of the, the terrors that, um, you know, that unfortunately are visited upon a lot of our children. And of course this was pre-social media. Yeah. So um, I'm 43 years old. So that was kind of how I felt going into anorexia and I bring up childhood because that's kind of, you know, those are the pre-anorexic years. But as I, as I developed into early adolescence, again, at that moment where the, the natural course of human development leads you into this individuation process, which is uncomfortable for everyone, mm-hmm. <laughs> the adolescent and everyone that surrounds them. Right. Um, it's not an easy thing. What I found when I got to that point was, I I was just surrounded by walls. It was going to be very difficult, nearly impossible for me to have anything akin to a normal adolescent development process. And really? those walls were built by an extremely stringent religion, okay. um, a father who took up all the space in the room, mm-hmm. and then a number of social pressures around uh, simply very high performance, you know, expectations of, of being exceptional in many ways. Well, so I'm trying to picture that. And it's interesting the fact that you call them walls, Mm -hmm. because I imagine that it can be walls of like physical walls, but also psychological walls. Um, So did you find yourself that you felt like you wouldn't be able to achieve what you wanted or have the place you wanted in life? Is that right? Mm, that's so beautifully said, Sylvan. Exactly right, actually. That's okay. exactly right. Yeah, the, the walls were psychological. What I found was, um, in, and I'm going to give just some really simple examples, and there are some yeah. very, you know, very much more complex ones, but... Um, uh, due to the nature of of my religion and uh, you know that I grew up in that I no longer abide by that, um, it, and just 
a general sense of kind of control over my life. Um, you know, when I when I raised the prospect of going to prom, for example, which would have been the first school dance I would have ever attended, it was a hard no, like absolutely not. You know, and the person uh, with whom okay. I wanted to go was a devil by the fact that, you know, he would be willing to go with me. Um, mm-hmm. Those kinds of walls. Uh, I, I was I was very high achieving in many, many ways. I had the highest ACT score in the history of my school. I was at a four point from the moment grades were kept track of. I, mm-hmm. I am um, state champion in golf and, you know, first chair in music and all these things. Um, but it felt like that was all that I was allowed to do. And if I was going to do anything independent, socially independent, uh, that, that was never going to be allowed to happen. Those are the, the kinds of walls that I was faced. Um, you know, I certainly, I wasn't allowed to date or to, um, to dance or to listen to music or like there were these incredible strictures and where I, where I did have freedom, it felt like were in the areas that reflected really well onto others. Okay. That felt very much like my value was not intrinsic and I was not allowed to direct it. um, Mm -hmm. Or as you said, you know, to, to make some of those, decisions or choices along the way of who and what I might be interested in becoming, it felt to me at the point in which you begin to engage those options and start to cobble together your identity, uh, mine had been fixed for me. And the only possibility I had was really just to step into that. And and unfortunately for me, I guess it, and of course it'd be unfortunately for me, but at the moment uh, that, that wasn't the identity I wanted to embrace. No, I can imagine. And, and there's always this part of purity where you distance yourself from what your parents have told you and try to build your own thinking. So I imagine that having all those constraints must be very, very hard. Um, so if you don't mind, I'd quite like to talk about the, the eating side of anorexia. I'd like um, to, can I pause you for one moment and just yeah, just sure. go back to the one thing you just said, and then I want to get into the eating side. Sure. That that natural desire to separate yourself from from those around you, like that is adolescence, that is individuation, yeah. and those constraints, as you described them, such a great choice of a word. That I believe is part of the experience of anorexia is that at the point of individuation, you meet up against those constraints and the restriction process is specific to the anorectic process, though I think many others can relate to this. Rather than having that normal adolescent pushback, the rebellion as it's often called, the anorectic shrinks. She She doesn't push back. She doesn't fight back. She doesn't create the space in which she can individuate. She just begins to shrink. She recognizes, okay, this is the world in which I'm allowed to live. And the Mm -hmm. further I get away from those walls, the safer I feel, uh, the quieter the voice in my head is and the voices around me. And it is that, that shrinking that I'm very interested in because it is, I know we're going to get into the eating side, which is important, but it is not only food that Mm -hmm. she restricts. She restricts everything that brings her joy as well as anything that could possibly be a problem for anyone else. So she, she just kind of 
goes into the space that has been prescribed for her rather than having that natural adolescent process where you start to kind of push the world away from you a bit. So you have a bit of room in which to kind of move around, grow, figure yourself out. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. So when you were just explaining this, I was thinking that it sounds like there's a need to comply with the external pressure, Mm. but then also take away, you said, I think, what brings you joy. And so, first of all, is that the right description? Yes, and I can I dive into that just a bit? Yes, yes, please. So this need to comply and this, um, you know, abdication of joy. Mm -hmm. One thing I've kind of only barely touched on, but it is core to the experience of anorexia, so forgive me for only just now getting here, is not from a schizophrenic or hallucinatory perspective. It feels like there is a, the experience of anorexia feels like there is a voice in your head. It is an integrated voice. It feels like you, um, almost like a rumination. I think any Mm -hmm. of us who have, you know, dealt with anxiety or something like that, we can, we know what that, that ruminating voice feels like in your head, but magnify that, exponentialize it in terms of just its relentless quality Mm -hmm. and, you know, make it the meanest person you can imagine on the planet. That's the voice of anorexia in one's head. And that is that even more than the external social pressures is what you're complying with. And that is the joy suck. Um, So I think that the voice is a compulsion, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also an integrated, I'd like, I, I, I would sometimes feel like the, the things the voice was saying, which again was just me and my own brain, but it sounded a lot like what others had told me was possible for me, you know, and then, and then just that a bit pathologized and made quite a bit more cruel. So the psychological experience of anorexia is one of compulsion to be complicit with what that voice is demanding Mm -hmm. and what that voice demands. Sometimes it'll be called ED, ED, eating disorders, right? This is very well understood in the eating disorder world that that voice demands your um, your behavior, which is highly pathological and, mm-hmm. and essentially points you in the direction of death. And that'll take us, you know, that'll take us to the eating side of things. But yes, I think you're absolutely right with the, the activity of being complicit. And, and I just wanted to tie in, it is a, a compulsion yeah. to be so. Okay. So when you think about the the eating uh, aspect of anorexia and how it affected you, from and and I'm just going to assume something here, but from a, an external point of view, because that's on the only thing that you can see, it must appear to be an extreme point that you reach. But from your point of view, was this? an extreme point or was this more of a continuation of what was already happening? Yeah. I, I feel like it's both. 
<laughs> Let me okay. explain that. So, and, and tell me if I'm, if I'm hearing the question incorrectly, I, I recognized on one hand, the extremity of the behavior and, and the extremity mm -hmm. of the point to which I got, I, I know we talked about this before, so but I'm very careful to not, and you're not asking it, but I just want to say to the viewers, I'm very careful to not share numbers, uh, mm -hmm. whether on weight or calories or anything like that, because yeah. I know that those become goals for others. Yes. And, uh, and I think, you know, in my journey in sharing my story, I, I am insistent upon first doing no harm. Yeah. What I will say is based upon the DSM-5 criteria, diagnostic criteria, I was severely anorectic for years. Okay. I did see that it was very aberrant on one hand, because in mm -hmm. contrast to others, it's obviously very different, but that just did not matter at all to me. On the other hand, it was never enough. So whether okay. it's a matter of, you know, d did I notice that the food intake was aberrant or that my, my physical appearance, uh, you know, took on a very skeletal form. Like I absolutely saw that in the mirror. I didn't look in the mirror and see, and, uh, you know, an, an obese person, for example, mm -hmm. but I still saw places where in my own pathological mind, I needed to shrink. Okay. Uh, so it was both, I could see it, but it was simply I still had in my head not gone far enough. Okay, so it's something that you had to carry on because of the shrinking. Because of the compulsion, that exactly. Yeah. Because of the, the need to shrink and the compulsion to shrink because there, there must be some belief in the anorectic mind that you can shrink to the point where you will be left alone, you know, where you will somehow okay. shrink to a space small enough that no one can get you. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that, you know, ironically, maybe from there you can create a world that matters to you. Uh, and of course that that's not what happens. You, you shrink, yeah. um, you shrink until you die. But I, I think the compulsion is that if I can just get away from the voice and the external pressures enough to, you know, corral my own brain in the direction that it wants to go, but of course it's a, it's a false hope in, yeah. in terms of the shrinking, providing that uh, stability, right? There, yeah. There's great hope in anorexia, but it, but it's um, the answer does not lie in the shrinking. No. How did your family react? Differently based upon, upon the person. So, you know, my mother was, uh, was an absolute angel. I, I think you know, the first thing I want to say really to, families of anorectics is, oh my heavens, you, you are in a very difficult position. Uh, mm -hmm. It is so hard. Uh, it's frustrating for everyone, uh, including, including the person with anorexia for sure, yeah. but for the family too. Um, and, and it can certainly feel impossible. So my family reacted with a lot of care and concern. Uh, my mother would have literally done anything to change the trajectory um, she's, she's religious. So she, you know, she was beseeching constantly in intercessory mm -hmm. prayer. And that was her way of dealing. Um, and she was supportive of me in every way that she could think to be, uh, friends would, you know, just as an example, um, there were these muffins that I would occasionally eat. And when it, became clear that I would occasionally eat these muffins because they, they met whatever criteria I was putting, you know, putting them up against. 
Yeah. Friends started trying to literally fit everything they possibly could with any nutritional value into those muffins, you know. <sighs> um, my brothers, I think, were just paralyzed, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, which makes perfect sense to me. And uh, and at the same time, you know, especially my oldest brother in his own way, very supportive. My father, you know, my father was true to form, right? The diagnosis, the diagnosis held um, with his mm-hmm. narcissism and sociopathy. I, I, you know, I somehow made the entire thing about himself. Um, and I, that infuriated me. Uh, and, yeah. and that was definitely a distinct part of my process that shows up um, in my writing about it. But um, yeah, I, I think, and, and we were really just an immediate family, the extended family. Um, was pretty distant when I was growing up. So that's kind of how my family reacted. Okay. And I imagine that at the time you were not in a position where you could explain to them why you were feeling this way. Oh, Sylvan, I had no idea. Everything yeah. I've said, I've discovered later. Yeah, I had no idea. I, mm-hmm. I, um, I only began to understand the drivers behind my anorexia a, a decade or more after my physical recovery. And, okay. and that is, that is its own story that we can certainly begin to mine if you'd like. But um, yes, at the time, no, I had none of these insights. So how did you, what was the, the path to recovery for you then? I feel like there are different stages, of course, in any kind of recovery. And, and the one yeah. that seems to be really closely focused upon it and understandably uh, is the physical recovery. Mm-hmm. And, and that matters because anorexia does have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. So that physical recovery is critical. Yeah. Uh, so there was that, that process, of course, um, to get back to, you know, a weight stability that, that had the hope of, you know, homeostatic behavior, you know, so we were no longer worried about, you know, sudden cardiac death or something like this. Yeah. That was a, a kind of two belts of anorexia, one starting at the age of 15 and one starting a kind of a, a slight recovery between high school and college, which I credit now just to whatever I needed to do to make sure I could go away for college because oh, okay. <laughs> I needed to get away. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I recovered well enough to, to earn that right. Um, and, uh, you know, which is a funny, funny, a funny thing to say, because, you know, I put myself through college entirely. Um, but just to, to have the, I don't know, the, the, the blessing, I guess, of everyone in my life that, you know, that I wasn't being hospitalized, I was able to kind of, you know, go out into the world yeah. without everyone going into sheer terror. So I had a slight recovery between high school and college, but my Weight stabilization ultimately happened probably in my early 20s. Okay. Um, and then from there, in terms of recovery, I I thought for a moment I, I was fine, right? Because the, the focus with anorexia is on the food and the weight and the and um and that, you know, because begins to be the definition of recovery. But oh my goodness, that is just just the beginning. The relapse rate, obviously, with anorexia is so high because I think recovery all too often ends there. And oh, okay. you've only just begun. You haven't even addressed the underlying cause mm-hmm. at that point. So I thought I was fine, early 20s. That's behind me, you know, those terrible years behind me, moving forward into this life I was going to create. And, uh, you know, I realized pretty quickly 
I was wrong that the 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 predatory mind essentially was still around and okay. you know continued to continue to haunt me so the psychological process then began and and I would say I feel I feel recovered I put that in scare quotes kind of whatever that means at this point I feel very I feel safe yeah um from the illness and at the same time I do not have enough arrogance or hubris to assume that I am um that I don't also need to pay close attention to those things that keep me in a psychologically healthy space uh, to to make sure that I never slip back into that way of thinking. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. But I've I've heard of people having like set rules or set pillars that they that they abide to to remain on the right side of uh, a mental health condition is that does that relate to to you or how do you what do you think keeps you uh on the recovery side i relate to that so strongly yes yeah i think of them as rituals or routines okay And I think someone could look at that and say, hey, isn't that controlling? Isn't that a thing? <laughs> What I find is, um, again, the, the, the psychological experience of anorexia is a, a voice that is integrated with yourself. It's not hallucinatory or delusional, but it is, it is relentless in its yeah. constant speech. And it is, it is constantly insulting you and compelling you toward the pathological anorectic behaviors. What I find with routines and rituals is it gives me something to hold on to outside of my head okay. um, that has, you know, these, these particular rituals have been validated in my world. And I know that they are positive for me and they mm -hmm. um, give me, you know, structural stability to my time and, um, you know, stability to my, uh, to my thought process. And, and I find those to be very comforting. So for example, I have, um, I have my tea ritual every morning or my yoga okay. ritual every morning or, you know, kind of just generally the way that I do things. And um, I think the literature calls it cognitive rigidity, which is probably to a certain extent true, but mm -hmm. like anything, you know, we have our, I call them our superpowers, right? We have, we have behaviors that are unique to us in some way that yeah. can be pointed in any direction. Right. So I have remarkable discipline and I can discipline myself into complete, and utter self-starvation, or I can discipline myself into the behaviors that are beneficial okay. to my wellness and continued healing. But yes, I, I do think that those pillars are, I relate to that strongly. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so I'd, I'd like to jump ahead to the present now, if that's okay. Um, so you have recently released a book uh, and I'd be really interested in understanding why you wanted to write a book about your experience. I didn't start out writing a book about my experience and okay. it kind of, it became that. So back to something we were just talking about earlier, you know, once I was weight stable in my early twenties mm -hmm. and had, had reached the, Um, you know, the, 
the psychiatric definition of recovery. Um, yeah. you know, and, and I, people were no longer concerned about me because it wasn't visible what was happening anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought I was well. You know, I also yeah. bought into that myth. And then I learned pretty quickly that I was I still was met with these incredible psychological challenges. Then later in my 20s, I there I had a, an experience that we probably don't have time to go into now, and it doesn't really matter, but essentially I had an experience of something taking up a lot more space in my life than it should have, you know, okay. um, kind of just leaning in on me in every way. Mm-hmm. And I started to have familiar thoughts and, you know, they didn't necessarily go so far as behaviors, but I know the anorectic thought process. Mm-hmm. I'm very familiar with it. And, and I, it just made me nervous to feel those thoughts again. So I sat down to write, to understand how I got there in the first place. I thought, okay. I don't, I don't have the privilege of taking for granted that I wouldn't do that again. Mm-hmm. So I need to understand how I, got myself to that devastating place in the first place to ensure that I never go there again. So I was writing for myself. Mm -hmm. It's something that I do frequently. I have bookshelves of journals and it's kind of how I, I'm repeating myself a bit, but how I understand how I feel about a certain thing or what I believe or what have you. Yeah. So the first several years of writing the book, because it took me 10 years to write the book, uh, was just my own internal process. I had been writing so much and kind of really getting into the theory that I posit, which we've already discussed, that my wife said, gosh, you seem to really enjoy this. Um, why don't you go to a writing retreat and take a, take a week to just kind of go head down on this? And uh, I hadn't even crossed my mind. I thought, well, that sounds amazing. So I did. And, mm-hmm. and the folks at that writing retreat really felt like I had a book and, okay. uh, you know, that the book needed more work and, certainly to um, to become what it ultimately did become. And so I changed the tone of the book. In fact, this is an interesting story. The, the woman who, who leads this particular retreat was my first editor as well. And she said to me, which I think is kind of profound, she said, as I read your work, I, I'm hearing two voices coming through. You have the young woman who is ill mm-hmm. and, and you know, you're able to express that with such transparency and candor. And at the same time, on occasion, you flip over to this other voice that is almost professorial in nature. And, uh, you know, this voice knows things, right? Um, and she said, you're, you're asking a lot of your reader, flipping back and forth between these two uh, experiences. She's a licensed therapist as well. And she said, I recommend okay. that you integrate these voices first in your own head and then in your writing which was profound because mm-hmm. it was, it was in my writing. There was, a, there were moments where either the vulnerability was too deep or I just kind of wasn't ready to go there. So then I would, I was switched to my knowing mind, you know, and I would, <laughs> and I would, I would do these little mini lectures okay. um, because that made me feel safe. So anyway, so yeah. that added to the writing process uh, a couple of years, but it was also a powerful process for me just mm-hmm. to, I think, take kind of some of those final steps that probably most people take in adolescence toward the individuation. I kept writing. Um, it is now a book titled Unrestricted, How I Stepped Off the Tightrope, Learned to Say No, and Silenced Anorexia, um, published by Harridan and Strumpet, and it launched earlier this month. The, the title itself is very meaningful to me. Um, 
came up with it while doing the dishes, actually. Um, <laughs> how I stepped off the tightrope is that refusal to abide by the perfection criteria okay. that we've integrated. Mm-hmm. Um, many of us, and certainly the um, anorexic experience is a pursuit of, of a deadly perfection. Yeah. Learn to say no is all about establishing those boundaries and beginning to actually delineate your space and hold it against, you know, whatever onslaught there is against it. Yeah. Um, and silencing anorexia as a recognition, I actually, um, a couple of people along the way said, shouldn't it be beat anorexia? And I said, yeah, I no, <laughs> I'm not even sure what that is. But um, silencing anorexia was in response to, as I've shared that idea that anorexia is a voice in your head that compels your behavior and if you can separate yourself from it, feed in every way that you feed, not just with food, yourself, starve in every way that you starve, not just food, that voice, mm-hmm. then you can you know, have a chance of coming into the full experience of, of who you are outside of those dictates from others. Yeah. It's interesting because I knew the title of the book before we spoke. Uh, but now we've had this discussion. I understand it much more, and and I love the image of a tightrope because you've, what you've described feels like a tightrope in a way. Uh, so yeah, very very well done on the, on the title of the book. Um, so I, I think we, we're probably going to have to to finish on that, but. Do you feel like it's been therapeutic in a way to write the book for you? I've been asked if it's cathartic um, or therapeutic. And I think for me, it's been more informative. So in my early 20s, when I just started to feel well, I I started speaking quite a bit about my experience, very raw, very fresh. That was cathartic. Mm -hmm. Fast forward through this 10-year writing process, I don't, I'm sure there's a therapy to it, of course. And I think simply keeping it present and up is actually very helpful that the, the anorectic mind and probably other mental illnesses, I only speak about anorexia because that's what I know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it thrives in, it, it, <laughs> it thrives in isolation. Right? So I think okay. keeping it visible uh, is, is probably very therapeutic. But for me, the writing journey was far more informative. I came out of that writing journey understanding a lot about what I believe anorexia is mm-hmm. and isn't what we are from a therapeutic perspective doing well or poorly. You know, we've, we've essentially made no advancements um, of any outcomes related advancements in, yeah. in the entire history of researching anorexia. So I was... Um, I was able to just kind of better understand myself and the disease state um, through that process. Okay. Interesting. Um, Well, I think that's all we've got time for today. Unfortunately, I think we could carry on talking a lot because it's extremely interesting. Um, But before we go, uh, I have one question that I like asking at the end. Um, which is, what is your happy place? So a place where you feel at peace. What a great question, Sylvan. I feel at peace when I have 
space and occasional solitude um, that, and, and I'll pick a physical place as well, but my happy place is one in which I can, I can exist without feeling as though um, expectations from others are changing how I get to exist in the moment. And I realize that ties in very closely with everything we're speaking to, but, but it does. And that's (laughs) very significant for me. That is truly on a day by day basis, my happy place. So where I am right now, um, you know, in a a remarkably natural setting, um, those are always happy places because, you know, nature has a way of kind of getting out of your way and not demanding a lot. Um, I think if I had a single happy place, it would probably be, um, at home, truly. I live in Boise, Idaho, on a little little farm slash ranch, and um, my wife and I we've created a very spacious, gentle um, place to be, and it is the place I am always very happy to return to. Sounds amazing. Well, thank you very much, Don. Uh, it's been incredible to uh, talk to you. Of uh, I feel like I understand anorexia much better uh, and I'm grateful for your time but also it's great to hear about your book and I wish you all the best with the book and I hope it helps people understand it better as well. Thank you Sylvan that's the idea thank you for listening and thank you for the opportunity I really appreciate it. Thank you.